And I think online in the social media world, we often get stuck with, I don't know, toxic positivity, which is, oh, just imagine everything's great. Just tell everything's great and it will be. And when you're in the thick of it, when you're going through it, and I don't know, you're faced with cancer or the loss of a loved one, telling yourself everything's going to be all right, your brain is smarter than you. It's going to be like, oh, everything's going to be all right. Our life sucks right now. <laughs> like, what are you talking about? And you're going to have all this negative and all these doubts in your head and this negative stress response occur because your brain realizes like, no, it's not all right. Stop trying to fool yourself. So what I push for is that nuance is that embracing reality doesn't mean being pessimistic. It means acknowledging the difficulty and the demands that you are going through because you're going to face them whether you like it or not. Whatever the difficult challenge is, it's going to be challenging. So it's better to go in eyes wide open on this is the task. This is what it's going to require. This is how I hope to get through it. I'm Doug Bopes, personal trainer, best-selling author, and entrepreneur. And I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage podcast, where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to another episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bopes, and today's guest is Steve Magnus. Steve is a world-renowned expert on health and human performance. He's the co-author of Peak Performance and the Passion Paradox and the author of The Science of Running. He is the co-host of two podcasts, the Growth Equation Podcast, and On Coaching with Magnus and Marcus. Steve has served as a consultant and speaker for NASA, the Houston Rockets, Murphy Oil, the Brooklyn Nets, the Cleveland Guardians, the Seattle Saunders, the New Orleans Pelicans, and more. The occasion for today's chat is his latest book, Do Hard Things, Why We Get Resilience Wrong, and the Surprising Science of Real Toughness. So let's get this conversation going and welcome Steve Magnus to the Adversity Advantage podcast. Steve, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm pumped to talk to you because when I saw the title of your book, Do Hard Things, Why We Get Resilience Wrong, and The Surprising Science of Real Toughness, this got me excited for, for, for so many reasons. One, because I think everybody's always looking for different ways to build confidence. Two, resilience is like a hot topic now. Everyone's telling you, be more resilient, be more resilient. But I think people lack the skills in order to, to know how to become more resilient, which I'm sure we're going to talk about. And then toughness, right? Because I think in life, like in order to get through hard situations, like you have to develop some level of toughness, right? Otherwise you'll fold under pressure. Otherwise you'll quit when trying to achieve a goal. But I think the idea of what toughness actually is and how to build it, I think we've gotten completely wrong. So let's start there. Like you've studied this stuff for quite some time and there's a lot of content, a lot of rhetoric on social media about just doing hard things and sucking it up and just embracing the suck and just to keep going even when you're sick and and all these things that people think define toughness. So if you could encapsulate this the best you can, like what are some of the biggest misconceptions you're seeing online with what it means to be tough and build toughness? Yeah. So I think the biggest misconception online is we focus so much on what I'd call the external. So it's, oh man, how do I like grit my teeth and grind through this and, you know, post that I'm doing this really difficult thing or post pictures of my watch at like 3 a.m. And if you do that, that's fine, right? But what you're doing is you're communicating to the world of like, look at me, like I'm so tough, I can handle all these difficult things. When the reality is the strength that we need to get through those challenging times can't come from only the outside. It has to come from the inside, which is figuring out not just, hey, I'm going to put my head down and bulldoze my way through things, but how am I going to navigate whatever challenge I have? Because we've all been in situations, whether we look athletically or outside of our world where we we kind of say okay now's the moment like let's go and we dig down and we dig deep and we try and reach deep and there's nothing there and you still have to figure out how to get through that right 
that's the key is if you reach down and there's nothing there, it's like, oh, what do I do now? I can't bulldoze through. Like, you've got to have some other path. Right. And I love how you brought up the external because there's people that they just put their highlight reels on social media and they're just doing things for the validation. They're doing things for the likes, for the comments, for the views, like all those things. And they really haven't developed, like you said, like anything internally to be able to like accomplish whatever it is that they're they're posting about or whatever it is that they're talking about. And there's the old saying that's like, don't just talk about it, be about it. So w- with that said, like in your mind, like what's it really take to be tough, right? Because there's a lot of, there's a lot of different narratives out there. There's a lot of different information, but in, in your research and all the people you've worked with, like what's it take to build some real toughness? Yeah. So I think a lot of it is, again, counter to kind of our intuition. And I'll go to, you know, the, the one place where we kind of all agree they're tough is if you look at research on, you know, special forces in the military, well, what do they do? They actually have a very high level of what's called emotional and cognitive flexibility, which means they don't ignore their emotions. They have a high level to be able to sit with and deal with and navigate them and understand them so that they know what to respond to and what to just be like, no, this is just fake. Like we just, I don't need to listen to that voice or that feeling, right? So it's, it's that, it's that emotional flexibility. The other thing that is really important, again, on research on military and special forces, but it applies to everybody, is it's not having, you know, confidence that is bravado, but as one one actually, you know, highly successful military operator told me, it's confidence that comes from humility. So when we have this, what he called humble confidence, what it does is it allows us to use doubt in a productive way. Instead of seeing doubt as this thing that signals like, oh, I don't know what I'm doing. He called it using doubt that keeps us sharp. Because if we don't have any doubts, like it's almost we go on autopilot mode. And the worst place to be when you're going through something challenging is often like, you know, in a mode where you're not paying attention to your surroundings, where you're not aware of, you know, the information that's coming in. So that little bit of humble confidence like keeps you sharp. So where you can be in the moment and handle the challenging thing. Absolutely. I think this, this idea of emotional and cognitive flexibility is so important. And I've, I'm just even thinking back to some of the times where I've kind of had to, to be tough and go through something that's challenging. And the more emotionally flexible I am, the more I can respond and not react, the more I can manage the head game the better I am, right? And then the flip side is also true, right? I think everybody who's listening to this can agree with this. We've all been in those situations where something pisses us off. We go through a challenge. We're not emotionally flexible and we snap and react. And then we put ourselves in a worse situation than before. So with that, all that said, I think like what you and I are talking about now, it's easy to, to say this stuff now in a conversation like this. The real challenge comes when we're faced with adversity we're faced with discomfort so what is what are some steps somebody can take or what are some steps that you've even taken with yourself to create that distance so that when you're in that state of discomfort you're able to remain like tough if you will and not react emotionally i'm so glad you brought that up because we all have this experience the the example i like to use is if you have a significant other and you've ever been in an argument and fight like we all have Like what happens, you literally kind of lose your mind. You're arguing with the person like you love deeply, but it's almost like this irrational side comes out. (laughs) And before you know it, you're saying things that you don't believe and that you're going to regret. That's that reacting part. So the way to deal with that in the moment, and whether we're talking argument with spouse or dealing with a lot of discomfort and pain of exercising, for example, is... Pressure and discomfort narrow us. It makes us feel like the thing, the feeling, the emotion that comes with it is like the be all end all and we can't separate ourselves from it. So what we have to do is exactly what you said there is create that distance or create that space. You can do that through a number of different ways. So a couple ways that that research shows really work is even by shifting your attention 
So what happens is our visual attention gets narrowed in on the threat or the discomfort. So if we adopt what I'd call like a more panorama view or soften your gaze, research shows that in your brain, it'll literally kind of turn down that threat area and turn down what we call like the executive function area, which is essentially your rational brain coming back online and being like, hey, what are you doing, man? Like, stop freaking out. So shifting your attention, again, going broad or zooming out. So other ideas that really work, too, is shifting or zooming out, like, temporally. What does that mean? Like, again, you tend to focus on the here and now, what's right in front of you, which can be good. But it often backfires when you're in that pissed off freak out mode. So when you zoom out and be like, okay, how am I going to feel 30 minutes from now? Or... If you're in the middle of a race, how am I going to feel at the end of the race when I look back upon this? Am I going to be happy that I just like gave in to this discomfort and slowed down? Or am I going to be like, ah, oh, crap, that wasn't that bad. I, I have more in the tank. So zooming yourself out. And the last one I think that is really helpful or pertinent, and again, lots of research behind this, is even the way we talk to ourselves can create that distance. So... Again, most of the time when we're going through the thick of it, we use first person and like we're like, you can do this, Steve, you got this, you can lift this, all that, whatever. Research again shows very clearly if you shift to second or third person and say, you know, Steve's got this, it might sound weird, but your brain interprets it as if you have, you're creating that distance where you have that space. It's almost like it creates that dislodges your brain just a little bit and be like, why in the world is he referring to himself as Steve? And that creates that distance where you can, again, get that rational brain back online and not panic and freak out. Yeah, you just provided some some really, really useful tools that, by the way, don't cost you anything, right? You talk about like using your vision to help reduce the stress response. You talked about like talking in the third person, which we had, um, I had Ethan Cross on. I don't know if you're familiar with Ethan. Yeah, he's done some brilliant work in that area. Yeah, and he talks about distancing yourself and, and being able to talk to yourself in the third person and how that can be incredibly effective to reduce the, the emotional load, I guess, during times of distress and not spiral down. With that said, I think what happens is people get in these moments of adversity like we've been talking about the last few minutes and they don't practice some of these tools that you just mentioned and they end up spiraling, right? And a a bad set in the gym becomes 10 bad sets. A bad day becomes 10 bad days. So other than the, than the tools you just provided, what are some other the other things that the research shows can help people prevent themselves from spiraling down a, a dark path when they're when they're in one already? Yeah. So a lot of it is we ingrain that spiral gets ingrained, and you see this in sport a lot. You know, you mentioned, you know, a bad set becomes like a bad day or a bad week or a bad month or what have you. The reason that occurs is because what happens is we essentially reinforce that response after that bad set. We ruminate on it. We think about it. We feel bad. Stress response occurs. Well, your brain all learns. It essentially says, oh, this is how I respond to a bad set. So let's make this something that like we don't want to do in the future, which means we avoid it. So the best way to deal with that is quickly learning how to shift out of that that stress rumination cycle and into a cycle where you're, you've got what we call like productive stress happening. How do you do that? You got to process things quickly. Best thing you can do after, let's say, a bad set or a tough loss or whatever in the game is shoot the shit with your friends. Chit chat with others. Like all sorts of research shows that what we call is psychologically debriefing with friends. And it's important that it's friends because with friends, we feel comfortable, you know, and we don't feel threatened. So if you can do that, that's often one of the best recovery tools you can have because it decreases the stress hormone cortisol, increases the good stress, like uh, hormones like testosterone, and puts you in a much better place. So again, often it's, how do you handle this thing afterwards, which then determines, do you spiral out of control or do you, you know, do you kind of move on from it and get in a place where you can, again, 
be more productive, be in a better spot. With everything getting more and more expensive, I am constantly looking for new ways to cut costs and find savings and also help my personal training clients do the same. That's why when it comes to buying my organic groceries and household goods, I am all about Thrive Market. With Thrive Market, you can shop everything from healthy pantry essentials to sustainable meat and seafood to frozen fruits and vegetables and non-toxic beauty products, and they are all delivered right to your door. Thrive Market carefully vets every product they carry so you can trust that if it's there, it's the best. Finding savings on items that matter most to you is easy with Thrive Market. You can find what you need because they have over 5,000 food, home, and beauty products. So if you are looking for plant-based, keto, or gluten-free, Thrive Market has you covered. Some of the things that I've really been enjoying from them lately are their chicken breasts, their fish, and their frozen veggies. Plus, when you shop with Thrive Market, you can save time and gas by not having to make that trip to the store because you can buy everything you need online. And best of all, if you happen to find a lower price elsewhere, Thrive Market will match it. So join Thrive Market today to get 40% off your first order and a free gift worth over $50. That's T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash Doug Fitness to get 40% off your first order and a free gift worth over $50. That's thrivemarket.com slash Doug Fitness. Again, it's thrivemarket.com slash Doug Fitness. Now back to the show. Right. And I think one of the other really important things that that helps people is, is what you brought up in your book. And that's like embracing reality when you're in a hard situation. And if you could, I want you to talk about this a bit, because I think there's this, this narrative again, online where when people are going through hard things, they should just, people are like, well, just be positive. It's going to be okay. Like everything's good. And it's like, well, like not everything's good. My house just burned down. Like my, I just buried my dog yesterday. Like my, my ankles like twisted, like there's a lot that's not right. But I think there's got to be this balance between remaining somewhat optimistic to getting through this tough sense of reality. But I don't think it could be Pollyanna either. So maybe talk about like the importance of embracing reality and how that can actually be beneficial. Yeah, it's, it's in that nuance, right? And I think online in the social media world, we often get stuck with, I don't know, toxic positivity, which is, oh, just imagine everything's great. Just tell everything's great and it will be. And when you're in the thick of it, when you're going through it, and I don't know, you're faced with cancer or the loss of a loved one, telling yourself everything's going to be all right, your brain is smarter than you. It's going to be like, oh, everything's going to be all right. Our life sucks right now. <laughs> like, what are you talking about? And you're going to have all this negative and all these doubts in your head and this negative stress response occur because your brain realizes like, no, it's not all right. Stop trying to fool yourself. So what I push for is that nuance is that embracing reality doesn't mean being pessimistic. It means acknowledging the difficulty and the demands that you are going through because you're going to face them whether you like it or not. Whatever the difficult challenge is, it's going to be challenging. So it's better to go in eyes wide open on this is the task. This is what it's going to require this is how I hope to get through it. But then in, at the same time, I think having hope over the long haul, right? And that's the key on this nuance is if we just said reality, 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 well, then you kind of get stuck in this not so good spot. If we say the reality of the moment, but hope over the long haul, that gives you this hope that, hey, things are going to change. Or if I you know, do the things that I need to, I'm going to adapt, grow, and get better as a person and hopefully come out on the other side, you know, better overall. So it's that, it's that combination that really matters. Yeah, like life, it's it's all about nuance, right? And I think you you brought up like such a, a really, really uh, important point for people to hear. And that's that like, A, you, you can't be toxic positive and B, like you can't get stuck in this embrace reality and then just like whoa you know like whoa is me and then that perpetuates right and then then like a bad three months let's just say if you, you lost a loved one or whatever that the time frame is becomes like a bad three years right all because you're now caught in that mindset well i'm just going to embrace my reality my life sucks it's not even worth trying like like all these things one of the other things that was really fascinating to me in your book was how you talked about um like really like embracing with accepting what somebody's capable of. And I see this a lot in in the gym where people 
Um, they haven't worked out in, say, like 25 years. And they're like, yeah, I'm just going to go back to the way I was when I was like a teenage track star or whatever, right? And then what happens? You get They get in the gym. They realize like, oh, like my habits have been out of whack for 25 years. Like there's no way I can maintain this. And then people quit. And I can give you example, example, whether it's personal, professional, physical, where, where this kind of stuff happens. So if you could go into the importance of like accepting what someone is capable of and like, how do you gauge that? Like, how does somebody really know what they're capable of? Yeah, that's a good point and a good question because it's, you see this all the time, especially in the area that you and I work in, which is, you know, helping others athletically often is that when expectations are misaligned with reality, bad things tend to happen, right? You either say, oh, I'm going to go, you know, work out like my 20 year old self or 18 year old self. Well, as soon as reality smacks you in the face, then your brain's like, you're just like, no, nah, this sucks. I'm quitting. I'm not going to do it. Much better is to like, just be real, accept what you are capable of in this moment, have this nice alignment between your perception of your capabilities in the task at hand versus the perception of the demands of the task. And we're not asking for perfect like synchrony, but what we want is just enough overlap so that it's real, so that you know what you're capable of. And again, people ask me just like you, okay, I get it. Like I need to kind of be realistic and know what I'm, I'm doing here. How do you do that? You get in the arena and try, right? How do you know how, how much you're capable of lifting? You start lifting some weight. And you start maybe a little bit cautious, but then you push yourself gradually. And over time, you're going to find that barrier of like, okay, I'm pushing the boundary of my capabilities right now. And maybe I can do a little bit more, but maybe I'm not, I'm not sure. But like you're in that zone where you know, okay, this is kind of that, that hard, really hard spot. And that's what you're trying to figure out because then it's if you know where your capabilities lie, you know how to get to that next spot of pushing the boundaries of taking on that just maybe just manageable challenge. And that's where growth and adaptation occurs. Yeah, it's like these these small wins right over time, like you said. And it's like in order to know where you're going, I say this a lot, you got to know where you're at. And I think a lot of times instead of people trying to figure out where they're at, they figure out where they were. You know, <laughs> and then they try to go off of that. It's like, well, you're not 18 anymore. You're not 20 anymore or you're not that person online. Right. And I think what happens is and this kind of is a good segue into talking about confidence is that people think that in order for them to, to be more confident, they have to like fit in with others and, and, and create this perception online that they're they're trying to achieve more than what they really are. And what happens, like it creates this cognitive dissonance, kind of like we talked about with the toxic positivity and, and reality that where your brain's like, you're not that fit. Like there's no way you're gonna be able to run a, a marathon. Like you haven't run a mile in 10 years. Like there's no way you're gonna be able to like stop posting about that. Like you're, you look silly, you know? And there could be countless examples like that. So where does, where, in your opinion, like where does true confidence come from? Like if somebody is like really trying to work on their, their level of self-worth and self-confidence, like what do they do? Yeah, so confidence demands evidence, which means you have to put in some sort of work that tells you that, you know, this might be really hard. You might not be able to accomplish it, but you've put in the work to at least give yourself a shot and a chance. Problems arise, like the example you just gave online, when there is a disconnect between, let's say, public you and actual you. And what happens there is you are literally balancing out psychologically two different yous. It's almost like you have this, like, to a degree, this split personality. And that does no one any good, right? It doesn't do you any good. It doesn't give your followers any good because, like, you know, it gives them an unrealistic expectation of what's possible. So what I'm all about is kind of aligning those two things. And again, developing that confidence by putting in the work consistently over the long haul. And earlier you mentioned small gains, like those small wins. And I think that's often where confidence comes from because we think, Oh, confidence comes from like doing the big thing, you know, making this huge lift or winning this X race. But no, it doesn't. It comes from stacking week after week, month after month of work 
that shows you that, hey, you know, I don't know what the outcome's going to be of this lift or this race, but I know I've put in the work to give myself a shot. And that's what true confidence is. It's not certainty. It's putting yourself in the arena, knowing that you have a shot. Yeah. And I love these examples of how you have to put yourself like in the game in order to feel like you know how to play the game, right? It's just like confidence, I think, is a skill. It's something you have to work on every single day. And it's something that's not going to happen overnight. And especially when you're when you're trying new things, but it, it's something that will happen over time if you stay consistent and do the small things with that new project that you're talking about. When it comes to like a lot of these sayings that we've heard, like just believe in yourself a bit more. You can be all that you can. You can achieve anything you want in life. Like you're going to be an amazing this or that. Like I think it's all, they're all well intended. It's all well and good, but I think they, they cause more harm than good based on what you talk about in your book. So if you could uh, explain like why that is and what people can do instead. Yeah, sure. Again, all of them are well-intentioned. I have no doubt about the intentions behind people who post or say things. The problem is it doesn't work. It sets unrealistic expectations. And we know this, you know, I'd imagine we're of similar ages, but like, Back in the 90s and 80s, throughout that generation, we had this self-esteem movement, which was essentially you tell people, you know, hey, you're great. You can do awesome things. Only it was just telling people that. It wasn't telling people that because they actually did good things or they, you know, put in the work to try to do good things. It was like, hey, let's just tell everybody you can achieve whatever you want in your dreams. And what the research and the psychology and the science shows is... Without the evidence behind it, it fails. So if I come up to you and I say, Doug, like, you know, you are the best trainer in the world. Well, if you haven't gone and like trained anybody in the last month, you're not going to accept that. You're going to be like, oh, okay. Thanks, Steve. That's a little, I mean, I appreciate the compliment, but like, that's not real. That doesn't give you that boost. What gives you the boost of your self-esteem, your confidence, all that stuff is again, doing the work. And then maybe being given a actual compliment or an actual reflection from people who sincere, that will give you that boost. But doing it on your own doesn't work. So all those great, those great social media sayings, well, they might be well-intentioned. They set you up kind of for this, again, delusional world. And then also it often sets us up for unrealistic expectations because we get told like, you know, you can do the the great thing we tell all kids, like you can do anything that you put your mind to. Well, not necessarily reality because talent is a thing. So even if I wanted to, Doug, like I'm not setting the world record for the deadlift. I can get better at it, but I'm not going to be that good. So I think, again, it creates this false narrative that, that doesn't do anybody any good. There's a theme that that's going on right right now and that we've been talking about, I guess, over the last... 25 minutes or so that we've been chatting and that's fake it till you make it like just doesn't work right again well intended right like thinking you can do something that you currently can't is well intended believing in yourself but in in many things you have to develop the skill set and you have to get competent and build some rapport with yourself and whatever it is you're doing in order for your body i guess to connect the dots and realize that you are going to achieve whatever it is um, you're going to achieve. I want to go into like how this all relates to like parenting, you know, because people who listen to my show, a lot of them are parents. And I know you reference a lot of these sports coaches in the book that externally they look tough because they're yelling, they're throwing stuff they're, they People think the players respect them because of how hard they're coming down on them. And in reality, it's the total opposite. So maybe from a parenting perspective, like, do you find that when parents are super tough on their kids, like they don't let them do certain things, they yell a lot, they get scolded for like the slightest things. Like, is that setting them up for success? Or is it setting them up for failure and, and why? So the research on this is fascinating. Because what it shows is our expectation is if we create a high level of 
discipline or yelling or structure around that and just create kind of this harsh discipline environment, our kids would be better disciplined because that's why we're doing it. But the research actually shows the opposite. When people have that high, they call it high demandingness in the parenting literature. When people have that high demandingness, their kids have more behavioral problems in school. Okay. They don't persist as long on difficult, you know, subjects or topics or even in the sporting world. And then there was this fascinating study that actually showed that people with very demanding parents failed more in the military, which is the one area where you think, oh, okay, like this might work in the military because you have a high, a similar kind of like structure of like very disciplined, but it fails. So what the parenting research shows is it's not that you can't have high expectations or high levels of demandingness in terms of like discipline or what have you, but you absolutely have to couple that with what they call a high level of responsiveness, which is essentially support and care. It's that I care about my child. It's that I'm going to be there to support them no matter if they win or lose or succeed or fail. It's that they know that, you know, we might have these expectations, but it's not the end of the world. They're not going to get punished to death if, like, they fail to meet them. We're going to work through it. And I think that that is such an important point that is often missed, both in terms of parenting, in terms of sports coaches and all that stuff. But if you step back and you think about it, of course it works this way. I mean, just to use the example of a, a sporting coach who, again, yells and screams at their athletes and creates this high disciplined area. And you think, oh, of, co of course, the players respect their coach. Well, no, they don't. What you've done is you've trained those players to respond out of a place of fear they're going to be quote-unquote disciplined when the coach is there overseeing them because they don't want to get punished or run laps or do whatever crazy stuff the coach is doing but as soon as the coach is gone like that motivation to be like motivated out of fear goes away and if you look at <laughs> How are we performing in games, for example? Well, A, if your your athletes are only performing out of a place of fear of being punished and they don't want to lose because the coach is going to throw a fit, A, that backfires. It creates pressure that often leads to choking and other things like that. And then B, in certain sports or activities where the coach is like not even a part of it, like you go run a marathon, like your coach isn't by your side for most of it. It's you alone in your head. You know, if you go to a major competition, like, yeah, your coach might be there, but you can't hear him. You're on the field with thousands of spectators for most of it when you're in the game. Like, you could barely hear that coach. So it's, again, you alone in your head. So when the coach isn't there, those dictating and demanding styles often backfire and uh, create worse performance. Again, like, I think part of it, I mean, I mean, obviously being violent with, like, the people you're coaching is, is not a good intention at all. Right. But I think, you know, the disciplinary stuff you talked about and even like yelling to try to like create some, some level of fear so that people don't repeat whatever it is they're doing is, is somewhat well-intended because their, I guess, goal is to say, okay, if I yell at them or if I discipline them in this way, like they're not going to do it again. But like you said, like just the opposite kind of shows and there's so much more that goes into it other than like the, just yelling at somebody for them to like change their behavior. Like they have to manage their own emotions and, and regulate themselves. It's not like somebody can fix that for them based on how they treat them. When it comes to being resilient, I know that like a lot of people have this idea that in order to be resilient and you have to just continue to put yourself in like painful situations, right? To develop that level of resilience, that level of toughness. And I know what you've said, like, again, it's kind of kind of the opposite shows, right? And you see this a lot, I think. Well, I mean, let's just let you get into it. So like, what, what are your thoughts on like building resilience? And like, like, how can a human, if they're listening to this, actually become more resilient in life and train themselves to survive challenging times? Yeah, so absolutely. So I think what you're looking at here is a couple of different things is anything, any single thing that causes 
anxiety, discomfort, uncertainty, that urge to maybe, you know, not be in that situation is an opportunity to train resilience. It could be as again, physical, doing some demanding thing. It could be psychological of, you know, going up and giving a speech or doing something that you're not comfortable. It could even be sitting at your desk when you have this anxiety and urge around checking your phone every 25 seconds. Like all of those things are creating resilience. Why? Because you're training your brain what to do when it feels that anxiety or discomfort and it has this urge to take some sort of action. So there are so many opportunities to do this. And often we get it wrong in how we train this because we think, oh, okay, we need to train this ability by just, again, gritting our teeth and pushing us through it. But what we actually want our brain to do, and this is highly supported by the research, is to be able to sit with that discomfort and anxiety, not react to it, and to navigate through it and find the best way. Which means, I'll give you the example, if you're in the, if you're running a race, right, you're running along or you go out for a run and you haven't exercised in a while, that initial, like at some point you're going to feel this pain and then you're going to feel this urge to slow down or quit or return to your home or whatever, throw in the towel. And instead of doing that, what you want to do is figure out, okay, how do I sit with and navigate this thing so that my brain learns like I'm okay. It's not a big deal. Like, yes, there's pain, but it's not life or death pain. I can get through this. So essentially what what you're doing, the neuroscience of this is fascinating, is you're turning down your fear response system that's like panicking, and you're turning up your prefrontal cortex, which is like the uh, rational executive function in your brain. And it's saying, hey, I get it. We hurt. We feel discomfort. We feel anxiety. But this isn't a life-threatening situation. This is not, there is not a lion right in front of us. Like, we're going to be okay, so stop sounding the panic alarm. Right, because I mean, like doing hard things and embracing discomfort doesn't just have to be physical, which is what I was getting at, I guess, with my original question, that people think that in order to become resilient and become tough and all these things, they need to put themselves like in like physically painful situations. I mean, and some of that, like, is good right like doing like cold plunges or even like getting in the sauna or pushing yourself harder at the gym or going on a crazy hike are all great ways i think to build some resilience but like you know just sitting in and i i'm guilty of this like when i'm sitting down and my phone like lights up it's like my first reaction is to want to reach for it and i do a lot i mean i'm guilty of that but what i'm trying to work on is just sitting embracing the discomfort of wanting to check it and then trying to relearn some new patterns so that I can be more present and focused on certain tasks. When it comes to discomfort, I know like one of the whole pillars of your work in like building toughness is the ability to like transcend discomfort, like to improve your relationship with it. And again, like it goes back to remaining tough. It's, it's easy to say this kind of stuff when things are good, it's easy to say, yeah, I'm going to do that. I'm going to embrace discomfort. But when you're in discomfort, in my experience, you're like, shoot, the whole world's coming to an end. <laughs> like, what do I do? So how can you begin to change your relationship with, with discomfort, shift your perspective on it, find some meaning in it, and, and really use it to your advantage? Yeah, I think a lot of this is that shifting your perspective of it is instead of seeing it as a negative and a threat, seeing it as something that you can learn from, grow from. And again, what the research clearly shows is that part of that process is about finding some sense of meaning and purpose behind the discomfort and how that could help you grow in the future. The other thing that I'd say that is really important with shifting this is we often think of toughness as an individual thing. We think of it as like, oh, it's me getting through this difficult moment. But part of your changing your relationship with that discomfort or the toughness, it's also about your environment. And what the research clearly shows and peak performers show is that if you can set up your environment correctly, then you can handle challenging things a lot more and you can be more resilient. What does that mean for setting up your environment? Essentially, 
if you have an environment that supports you in the sense that you feel like you have some sort of autonomy, which is you feel like you can make a difference, like you have some choice, you're not like stuck in a box and, you know, can't move around. If you feel like you can make progress, which means you can grow, you can adapt, you can move forward, there's different paths you can take. And then most importantly is if you feel like you belong. So this goes for your workplace, this goes for your team, this goes for you as an individual in your life. If you have some sort of support system that allows you to feel like, hey, I belong and even if I fail at this thing, I'm still gonna have the support of my good friends or family or team or what have you. That goes so far for allowing us to take on difficult things allowing us to bounce back from difficult things. And it also changes our perception and our kind of relationship with difficult things. And there's this fascinating study that showed, you know, for an example, if we have our spouse or our significant other next to us, well, you know, uh, researchers put something we're scared of, like a snake, like right next to our head. <laughs> The fear area in our brain like is quieted down a little bit when we have someone supporting us next to us, right? So if we're doing something difficult, often the threatening is a little bit more manageable if we have that support or those people in our corner. And that's such an important place for uh, or important thing for being able to take on difficult challenges. Right, right. I mean, the environment is so important, right? I mean, I, I want to go back to that because like that's like a a foundation of what I, I like to talk about on here is the importance of who you spend time with and making sure that you have a great support system and people that bring the best out in you and, and that challenge you too during times of adversity. Like, I mean, some of your adversity could be like, you know, created by yourself where you're putting yourself in just putting yourself in situations that you shouldn't be putting yourself in and you're having people call you out on it to help kind of like call you out on your BS to, to help you get out of that. And then obviously also you want people there that are there to, to support and love you when you're going through unforeseen circumstances that are unfortunate as well. Along the, the same lines of like really embracing discomfort, I think that people believe or people have a hard time with it, with insecurities. They have a hard time with, with, with self-doubt during time of adversity and especially like in the self-help world that you and I kind of play in where you're, you're taught to, I mean, not taught. I mean, it's like the idea is that, you know, you should just always believe in yourself. Like things are going to, to always work out. Right. And that if you have any doubt or insecure securities that you're not successful, you're not confident. Talk about why that's just not true and, and how we can start to embrace like insecurities and our own even doubts and um, use them to our advantage. Yeah, it's total BS. I'll give you an example. A couple of years ago, I sat in a room with all these world-class runners, like world-class Olympians, you know, won major marathons, all this stuff. And I asked them, I'm like, how many of you guys have ever thought in a major race of like, you had these doubts where you wanted to quit? And every single hand goes up, right? And these are the best in the world. Why? Because it's normal. We're humans, right? Doubt and insecurities is essentially our brain's protective mechanism. And in this case, often the case is what it's doing is it's protecting our ego or our sense of self-worth. Because when we go through like challenging or risky times, what happens is like if we fail, it's kind of a hit on our ego. It's like, oh man, I wasn't good enough. Or, oh man, I wasn't you know, people aren't going to see me the same way after that loss or after I didn't, you know, reach that goal. So all those doubts and insecurities are just your brain trying to protect you. And I think, okay, if we acknowledge that we all have them and we say everybody goes through it, even the best of the best, is the best thing to do say like, oh, like never have any doubts or insecurities. Well, that's not realistic. It's not going to occur. Like those doubts are going to happen. So much better, and this is kind of a theme of our podcast here, is like, well, we've got to deal with the thing, which is the thing is these doubts are normal. So normalize them and then figure out, okay, I can't just ignore them. 
what I've got to do is figure out, okay, how do I give myself the evidence that it's okay? How do I work through these and maybe not assign them as much importance and say, yes, doubt, like I see you, I acknowledge you, I get you. But like, you know, that's not real because what we're really trying to separate out again is the times when we really need protected and we're in danger and the times which is more often when we don't need protected, we're not in danger, we're not our, you know, who cares if our ego takes a hit, we're okay. And it's, and during those times, understanding how to sit with and not freak out on that doubt is what it's all about. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, God, I couldn't have said it better. I mean, what you just said, it's so, it's crucial for for people to hear that, that you have to like learn to like embrace the doubts, embrace the insecurities that come with like getting through hard times and like really like unpacking like why you have those and, and learning to like address those in a way that's going to help you like grow as a human being instead of ignoring it and saying like, oh, if I have insecurities, if I have self-doubts, that just means that I'm going to be a failure because this is telling me that I'm not successful because I'm doubting myself. One of the other things that people get so caught up on when they're trying to pursue something, I don't care if it's personal or professional, is the idea of perfection and controlling the uncontrollables, right? And I love how you t you talk about this in the book that essentially you just, you got to control the controllables. Like you got to focus on like what's in front of you, but that you also have to just, you could focus on like internal things and being a good person and, and doing things to the best of your ability. Like why is, I mean, I think we all know at this point that perfection is a facade, that it's not real. What can people do instead? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, perfection often gets in the way of good and that's the problem. And instead of trying to be perfect to tr try and control everything, to me, it's about being good enough for a long enough time that you're able to reach your potential. So for me, it's about kind of instead of focusing maybe on what I call the ceiling, which is we're always striving for the next thing, trying to be perfect and like be the best every single day. I like to call it like raising that floor, which means how do I perform on my, on my bad days, my solid days, my okay days? If I can raise that up, well, guess what? When the world aligns and it is one of those, you know, really good days, then I'm going to be able to take off from a higher floor and achieve something that I m might not have thought possible. If every day I'm staring at that ceiling and being like, okay, I got to strive for being all the way up there and being perfect all the time. All I'm doing is setting myself up for essentially, you know, worse motivation. Because if you sit there and you try and be perfect all the time, eventually your motivation is going to take a hit because your brain again is going to be smarter than you and it's going to be like hey this is we keep losing we keep setting this incredibly high bar and not living up to it so it almost goes to like what's the point why try mode after a while which is often what you see when you see perfectionist is after a long time it's just not sustainable so to me it, it comes back to how do you set yourself up for sustainable realistic success instead of this facade that just isn't true or doesn't work and i think there's like these two polarities that exist within that spectrum right there's the polarity of if i can't do it perfect what's the point and then i'm just going to be like good enough and just be kind of average and then you really don't ever push yourself beyond that and you, end, and you end up doing the same thing over and over again and you know you see this in the gym where i mean i'll see people come in and sometimes and do the same like four exercises and they'll just pump out like the reps and they'll think oh i did like three sets of 10 at the same weight i've been doing for the last three years like i guess that's good enough right how does somebody move past that and almost like transform that relationship to where they are embracing that good enough mentality, but it's not becoming a detriment to their success. Yeah, so to me, it's about balancing these out, right? So the majority of your time, you should be for small wins. And then every once in a while, you wanna push those boundaries. You need something that almost shifts your perspective. So in the athletic world, I, I kind of keep it simple, is that if, 
every single day you know you can walk in the gym and lift do your three sets at whatever weight and that's what you do every day and every day you know you can do it rain or shine like it doesn't matter that's a problem you have to have something in your life where you fail at right something where if you're lifting like you have to have some sets where you either fail or get pretty close to it again i'm not saying train to failure all the time but you're getting something where it's really difficult because if you succeed all the time motivation plummets i mean it's the same and it's in the same everywhere you know if you're in school and i give you straight hundreds every day for whatever you're doing eventually you're going to be like, well, I don't need to put any more effort to do this. I'm succeeding at whatever level I want to. We have to have things that challenge us. So again, I would challenge people to, to step back and say, how often are you in a place where maybe you don't know if you can do it? You know, you're at that struggle point where it's like, ah, I think I can, but I'm not sure. You need to be there every once in a while. And if you're not, you got to up your ante. Right. And I think this is like a perfect place for us to kind of bring our conversation like to a close because I think that kind of really like sums up like our conversation, right? Is being able to be in the moment, like embracing where you're at in these tough times, like focusing on what you can, not trying to be somebody that you're not, but then also like having um, this level of grit to pursue like some challenging things in your life on a regular basis to kind of push the envelope a little bit and improve your level of confidence, improve your level of resiliency, and then ultimately become a tougher human being. So Steve Magnus, this has been incredible. I want to thank you again. If people want to connect with you, if they want to buy your new book, where's the best place for them to do that? It's available wherever books are sold. So get it wherever. And then on social media, Twitter, Instagram, I'm at Steve Magnus. Perfect. Well, I will make sure to plug all that stuff in the show notes. And for those listening, what I invite you to do is to share a takeaway. Maybe it was something that, that Steve said about like what it really takes to build toughness. Maybe it was something that we talked about with regards to embracing discomfort. Maybe it was something that he shared about how to kind of create distance when you're going through um, moments of hardship, whatever it was, tag Steve and tag myself because we'd love to hear your feedback. And we once again thank you for listening to this episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst, and we'll see you next time.